With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is Finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We're on vacation this week, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing show for you today. The Washington Post, Metropolis blog, Gillian Brockell talks to us about the history of strikes. But first, we have Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting survivor David Hogg on his new organization, which is dedicated to electing more people to state legislature and Congress. Welcome to Fast Politics, David Hogg. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about what you're working on. I just graduated college, and as my next step, I am working on launching a PAC and super PAC called Leaders We Deserve, dedicated to helping elect young people across the country, especially in state legislatures, to help turn the tide on the far-right agenda by investing in the future. We're focused on electing candidates under the age of 30 to state legislatures and under 35 uh, to Congress, but really most of our focus is on state legislatures, especially in states like Florida and Texas that are not going to flip in the next cycle or two, but have a chance of doing so in the next decade or so. That is pretty interesting because you come from Florida, right? Tell us a little bit about, you know, the Democratic Party in Florida. One of the reasons why DeSantis won by so many points and why he really did well there was because Democratic Party sort of imploded in Florida. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you're that how what you're doing dovetails there. I've been involved since I was 17 years old, which was, you know, just basically five, five and a half years ago. So I can't talk to the specifics of the internal politics that happened pre-2018 within the Florida party, obviously. But I do know, regardless of whatever's going on, no matter how strong or, or weak a party is in any state, 
the best solution all around, I would believe, is investing in the future um, with some of these really young, charismatic young people across uh, the state in Florida, people like the Leaders Against the Don't Say Gay bill, other young people that are standing up and fighting for what's right, as we've seen is common in Florida after 2018. You know, It's common in the media to talk about how DeSantis is just getting win after win after win. But what's not talked about a lot of the time is the fact that Florida consistently passes progressive ballot measures. But because of the way that a lot of the districts are drawn, it has trended towards Republicans in the, in the past decade. But I don't think that that's necessarily something that's going to last forever. I think what's part of DeSantis's wins are the fact that there is an aging population that is retiring and moving to Florida that even when they were my age, were already more conservative than my generation is. And they've only been so since they've gotten older. And my generation has the greatest asset that you can have on your side in politics, perhaps even more than billions of dollars, which is time, because not even the Koch brothers can buy more of that. And that's what we see this as. You know, we might not be able to flip the state legislature this election or the next one, but we're laying the groundwork so that in 10 years, when, you know, in seven or so years when redistricting happens, we have a better chance at cutting off the super majority and making some gains there and giving young people hope that it doesn't have to be this way, that there are people, you know, imagine a Justin Jones, but in Florida, right? Well, that can show them that it's not, not all hope is lost. There are people that look like you and think like you in the state legislature and that your voice matters. And that's kind of what we see this as, is a way of investing in the future and taking from the recent movements of the past five years, you know, for every year of Trump's presidency, he was so incompetent that there was a new chapter of uh, several social movements that was born, from the women's movement to March for Our Lives, to the Sunrise Movement, to the movement for Black Lives, right? What we're trying to do here is take some of the most charismatic and impressive young people from those movements and help raise them up to run for office and other young people with different backgrounds too that have experience in areas such as artificial intelligence and others to show that you know our generation is stepping up and we're not just yelling from the outside, we're working to change who's on the inside if we can't get them to do the right thing. Because it's not just enough to have a movement on the outside to hold politicians accountable. We need better politicians to begin with, right? And we've had amazing politicians before, but there've been far too few of them as evidenced by what my generation is currently going through. Right. As we look at Florida and we look at this idea of a kind of more progressive state leaders, what kind of races are you looking at? Yeah. So the races that we're targeting, I want to be very clear, we're not here to challenge incumbent Democrats by any means whatsoever. That it, Those are not the races we're targeting. We're going after open blue seat primaries and our main focus is going to be helping to elect young people in those seats because they often don't have that much investment. But Part of our theory of change here is if we can help elect more young people that understand what it's like to have the anxiety of not knowing if you're going to survive math class, we can have more young people turn out across the state, right? Because they see that their values, their voice is being reflected, and that helps candidates up and down the ballot. And this isn't to say that we don't need older people in politics. We absolutely do. We need seasoned professionals that have done this work for decades. I think it's important to point out, though, that, you know, with somebody like Joe Biden, the reason he's effective is because he's been around for so long. He was first elected with 29 years old, if I remember correctly, to the Senate. It's because he has all of that experience on the Hill that he's able to do things like work to get the IRA passed. And obviously the movements on the outside help with that too. But there's nothing quite like gaining that experience from a young age, being part of that system that enables you to get things done. And I see that as what we're kind of trying to do here is invest in these young people that understand that anxiety. Because I look back at what older generations went through that's similar to school shooter drills, and I think of nuclear bomb drills, right? The generation that went through nuclear bomb drills went on to pass some of the most, actually the most comprehensive arms reduction treaties in human history. And I believe 
going to take our generation coming into politics that understands that anxiety to do a similar thing, working hand in hand with the older leaders to be mentored and learn from them. There was some good gun legislation passed after Marjorie Stone Douglas. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So after the shooting at my high school, at Marjorie Stone Douglas High School, you know, a lot of people said, it's great you young people care, but this is Florida. Nothing's going to change here. It doesn't matter how angry you are. It doesn't matter how tragic what happened is. It's not going to change. And I think it honestly is a consequence of just us, frankly, not knowing that much about the real political climate in Florida at the time. We just didn't care. We said, whatever, we're still going to try. And we showed up working with our younger state legislators like Lauren Book, Carlos Guillermo Smith, Anna Escamani, and so many others. Well, Anna was elected in 2018, but many others at the time that worked with young people after Parkland to give us a voice in Tallahassee that we were able to change laws because young people showed up in Tallahassee demanding action and older people showed up with us, but obviously centering the power of those young people and the, the innocence that they represent, I think helped to push the Florida State Legislature. And although they didn't ban assault weapons, which is a major part of what we wanted, they did raise the age to buy a gun in the state of Florida to 21. And they also passed a law that would enable somebody who is a risk to themselves or others to be disarmed, which has been used over 6,000 times since Parkland. And mind you, a Republican state legislature passed that, right? It shows the power of these young people to show up. Why do you think that Republicans, they don't see this coming, right? I mean, I think about, you know, I'm a little older than you are, sadly for me, and I didn't have lockdown drills growing up, but your generation is clearly so traumatized by these lockdown drills. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, my generation is very traumatized by these lockdown drills. I mean, we have the daily anxiety of going to school and high schoolers every day wonder whether or not they're going to survive math class, but it's also elementary schoolers, you know, that are asking when they're told that there's going to be, they come up with different ways from what I've heard of describing to elementary schoolers when they go through an active shooter drill. They'll say it's something like a scary bear or a monster that they're trying to hide from to try to make it less scary to the children. But eventually they end up growing up and as they get older, they learn what that is. And it's an incredible amount of anxiety. When I talked to John Del Velope, who's one of the leading youth pollsters who works at Harvard, he's one of the leading pollsters he's in the country. He's a friend of mine too. And I asked him, you know, I've known him for almost basically since right after Parkland. And I asked him, you know, what is the difference between our generation and many generations that have come before us in terms of our like attitudes toward politics and our view of the world? One of the craziest things that he said to me was that young people have described to him in these focus groups, high schoolers have said the anxiety that adults feel every day, probably by paying taxes or paying bills or whatever it is, how it's just lingering in the back of your mind. Like you're, it's always there that you're thinking about it. That's what it's like for young people to think about school shooter, potential school shooters coming into their school. It is a constant thought every single day and anxiety that they have. And it's not like they're, of course, they're very scared, but it's obviously not an immediate threat to them because they know that it's likely not going to happen at their school, statistically speaking, but it's still an anxiety that they have every day. It's also about the long-term fear that young people have of the future. I mean, we live on an, this is going to be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. That is bringing anxiety to our generation not to mention the economic pressure that we're under still as a result of the the failure to fully recover after the 2008 recession and student debt and so many other factors that stress out our generation. And it's not to say other generations haven't been through incredibly stressful things. They have. Thankfully, my generation is not going through the Cold War right now, like many others before us did. But we're living through a time with nonetheless major challenges ahead 
But what makes me hopeful is knowing that over the past four years of studying history in college, that great generations are not born, great generations are made by the moments that make them. I just want to stop you for a minute. It's 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 good to hear you, and I, I agree with you. But I just think about with the gun crisis, if the people during the 1950s could have ended the Cold War, they would have. I mean, the gun crisis is not like the Cold War because the Cold War was, I mean, it was ultimately, there are larger causes, but with the gun crisis, like legislators tomorrow could just end it, right? I mean, it is really, I you know, it's something where it is your own politicians targeting you. I mean, I feel like the perversity of it is not something we talk about. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly, thankfully, not as challenging as ending the Cold War, but it is challenging in that we have a, a cycle where as more shootings happen, more Americans buy guns because the gun industry fear mongers, right? Then they're able to pump more of that money into politics, which then actually loosens gun laws by passing things like permitless carry, which then causes people to want to arm themselves more. And it's a positive feedback loop where these gun companies are making billions of dollars every year, and then they're pumping a lot of that into politics to make sure that they're empowering these politicians who then gerrymander their way into power and make us and create a system where voters aren't picking their politicians, but politicians are picking their voters. So it's obviously not the same, but it's still a challenge nonetheless, because there is that profit motive there in the first place. And I think part of what we're going to have to do as a generation is show that we're not just on the outside, right? Demanding change that if you stand in our way, we're an existential threat to your power and we will replace you. Right. Talk to me about candidates you're excited about. Well, obviously, candidates similar to Maxwell Frost are some of the ones that we're excited about. But I think one important point that I, I forgot to mention earlier is that although we're, our main focus is going to be on these open blue seat primaries, after the primary election in these states where there are young people that are running, such as Jay Schuster, for example, who's a, a young man, a, an attorney that is an expert on artificial intelligence, who's running in a very competitive district in uh, South Florida, Candidates like him are the ones that we're, we're excited about, but also looking at, you know, other young people in these social movements that can run for office that don't even know that it's a possibility. Or if they do, they think that they have to run for Congress, but in that state legislature isn't an option for them. The other thing is that I look at candidates like Nabila Saeed, who have been elected, right, to state legislatures. She's one of the youngest state legislators in Illinois. And the work that they've done, you know, she's done work to make sure that students that have IEPs to make sure that like they're registered to vote. And that matters to me because I had an IEP growing up because I have dyslexia. I'm just going to explain to our listeners an IEP is something when you have a learning disability and you're in public school, you get given an IEP and that you're able to use to navigate the system. It's just a number, but it means you have either ADHD or, or dyslexia. I'm dyslexic too. Anyway, go on. Welcome to the club. Right now, uh, Molly, the main focus that we have is getting it set up and making sure that we really want to go out there and find the best candidates that we can. So when we launch this, we're not launching with endorsements right out of the bat because we have to do the right amount of research and we have to make sure that, that we have just the best candidates that we can in the first place. We'll be announcing our announcements in the coming months. So part of it will be these legislators and focusing on these races that are so important, but get a little less attention, like these state house races, state congress, you know, the those level races. That's majority of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a vast majority. And then also there's a certain amount of focus on youth turnout too, which does seem like a really important point. So John Delavolpe, who we're both friends with, who is a Gen 
Z. Are you guys Gen Z or whatever the youngest generation whisperer is? Had these incredible polls, which showed basically that the, your generation thinks the Republicans are just morons. <laughs> Talk to me about that. I mean, our generation has clearly been. I think we're just fed up and we're tired of the bullshit. You know, it's like Emma said or X said in their speech after Parkland that we call BS. As a generation, we're tired of the failed policies that are getting us killed in our schools. And there's no amount of spinning that you can do that's going, you know, you can't just keep talking about funding more mental health programs to stop school shootings and do nothing about it. And school shootings continue and just act like there's some amount of spinning or framing that you can do politically or a number of consultants you can talk to that is somehow going to make young people not feel the anxiety that they're feeling because school shootings are continuing. It's also, it's a similar case with climate change. You can't just keep talking about it and, and gaslighting an entire series of generations of Americans when every summer it's getting hotter. So for our generation, we're basically seeing the, I feel like we're the, we're really the first generation to see it at, as a whole, the amount of stuff that has been swept under the rug constantly by Republicans that now there's so much of, they can't keep hiding it over and over. So it's blatantly obvious for us. And an important point about that is to, in uh, 2022, young people voted again at one of the highest rates in American history, especially in comparison to 2014. Not only in comparison, I talked about this with John Delvalope. In 2000, young people 18 to 29 voted about 50-50 for Bush and Gore. In your average congressional election in 2022, young people voted not only at one of the highest rates in American history, but plus 20 points for Democrats. That is a critical part of the Democratic coalition now that they have to negotiate, that the White House has to listen to, that anybody who wants to be elected as a Democrat is going to have to listen to just as much as they have to listen to a lot of the other factors within our coalition because we've made our voice heard and we haven't gone away. And what makes me excited about that is even when we had both the House, the Senate, and the presidency, what well, we saw a deal with the filibuster, but even when we had those three, young people still turned out. And what that's evidence of is we're not just voting against something, we're voting for or something. We're voting for a better future where kids are protected in their schools, right? We're voting for a future with an inhabitable planet and for morally just leaders that work to ensure that the interests of the future of the United States are protected and not the short-term interests of the NRA are protected in the first place. Thank you so much, David. I hope you'll come back. Of course. Thank you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Gillian Brockle writes the Retropolis blog for The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Gillian. Thank you, Molly. Longtime listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) So you write... Uh, a blog for the Washington Post. You also write for the Washington Post, but the blog is called Metropolis. Explain to us a little bit about what it is. Basically, it's the history blog at the Washington Post. It's where you're going to get your historical context for news of the day and, you know, learn different and perhaps more realistic and authentic versions of the history that you were taught when you were younger. Let's talk about the strike, because right now there's a massive WGA SAG, which is SAG, Screen Actors Guild. Um, there's a there's a, a massive strike. The directors a made a deal, yeah. whatever. Right. But, the, you know, actors can't promote movies. They can't, you know, writers are not writing. Nothing is happening in Hollywood. Tell us about the last time this happened. I was hoping you could talk to us about the one in the 60s. Sure, yeah. In 1960, uh, there was another double strike with the actors and writers. And the issue was really similar. It was about residuals for a new technology. So at the time, playing reruns of movies on television was this brand new thing that was just starting to happen. And there was no contract for that with the Screen Actors Guild to pay the movie actors when their movies played on TV. Previously, there had already been a contract for TV reruns playing on TV, but not movie reruns. And so this was a new thing. And it was the same with the writers. The writers wanted residuals for movies running on TV. And they struck first, and then the actors joined them. And like in 1960, the writers struck, I think, a total of 21 weeks and the actors for five weeks. At the time, though, it wasn't quite as strict as 
the terms are for the striking workers now, they were still allowed to promote movies and go to award shows. So actually the, the 1960 Oscars were held in the middle of the strike and all of the actors were there and all of their glamorous finery and Bob Hope, who was a member of SAG, uh, was the host. And the first thing he said, you can watch it on YouTube. The first thing he said when he walked out is he said, welcome to Hollywood's most glamorous strike meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And let's talk about Ronald Reagan was involved in this. Yeah. So Ronald Reagan had been the president of SAG from 1947 to 1952. He was brought in again in late 1959 and in 1960, you know, as sort of a, a ringer. He had negotiated the contract earlier for TV actors to get residuals on reruns. So he was brought back in uh, to serve a shorter term as president of SAG again to negotiate with the producers at this time and be involved in this strike. What's weird and what, you know, nobody knew at the time was that Ronald Reagan was also a producer at that point. He had producer credits and really shouldn't have been representing the actors for anything because there was a conflict of interest there. But he just kind of kept it a secret, didn't tell anybody. And they were like, okay. (laughs) That's very strange. Also, Ronald Reagan, this is going to get people crazy, but (laughs) Ronald Reagan, it really is, wanted to join the Communist Party. According to your grandfather, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. According to my grandfather, Ronald Reagan wanted to join the Communist Party. Discuss. Yeah. So in 1938, this is Howard Sachs, your grandfather's story, that in 1938, young Ronald Reagan was new in town in Hollywood. And he did use to describe himself for a long time as a New Deal liberal. According to Howard Sachs, he also wanted to become a communist and was not let in because the communists thought he was too stupid. Yeah, I can't imagine that's true. I mean, I know my grandfather. I can't imagine that. I mean, I'm sure that my, I'm sure they did think Ronald Reagan was stupid, but that may be where it ends. It's quite interesting to talk about this sort of what happened. Because, you know, when we think about this strike, there's a lot of talk of AI and things that aren't necessarily relevant to this sort of history. And this actually, they really were striking about a lot of the same stuff, residuals, who makes money, who owns things. It's residuals for a new platform for previously made work. I mean, it's really the same thing. And it was the same thing that in the beginning, the producers said, you get nothing. The actors and writers will negotiate. And in the beginning, the producers said, we say you get nothing. In the end, the strikers were successful. Um, they Somewhat. They got residuals for movie reruns for movies made after 1960, so after the strike. They also wanted residuals for movies made before 1948. They did not get that. But they did get the start of a pension plan for SAG. And so that was, that was a big concession. Some people were not happy about the contract that ended the strike that Reagan negotiated. One of those is, you know, said to be Bob Hope was not happy about it. And then later, James Garner, you know, the the famous actor, he wrote in um, his memoir that he was vice president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time. 
And he said, the only thing I remember is that Ronnie never had an original thought and that we had to tell him what to say. That's no way to run a union, let alone a state or country. (laughs) But the history of workers' rights, I mean, this is what really this strike is about, is uh, how are writers going to be compensated? Are actors going to be compensated? Are... You know, what What does that compensation look like? The fight for labor has been really an American, uh, you know, it's been something Americans have been doing for a long time. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, you have, you know, the, the start of unions and striking workers. And anybody who wants to get read in on the history of labor in the United States, I can't recommend enough Kim Kelly's book, Fight Like Hell, which came out last year. And uh, it's just terrific. And, you know, really just goes over that. I mean, the reason that we have all of these things that we think of as givens today, like fire exits for the buildings that we work on and having the exits be unlocked and not padlocked shut, you know, the eight hour workday, everything, all of that comes from the labor movement. I think a lot of people in my generation, I'm like an X and an annual X annual. I think a lot of people don't know that just because we grew up when labor was at its weakest. Gen Z seems to be really a part of uh, the sort of revival of labor unions that's been happening in the last few years, where you're seeing people looking at actors, not just as these, you know, glamorous, spoiled prima donnas, but saying, no, this is a worker who is offering a service that the producers can't do and therefore should be getting a piece of the profits like any other labor. Right. I think that I'd love to talk to you a little more about what's happening with labor in this country, because we're seeing from Amazon to Starbucks to the larger ways in which unions were able to fight against wealth inequity. Well, one criticism that people have had of the labor movement, particularly in the United States versus other countries, is that Americans don't have a sense of solidarity the way they might in, say, the UK as workers, because we see ourselves as sort of temporarily poor or, you know, as as like, oh, I'm, my big break's going to come tomorrow. The idea that you are a worker, that you are you know, a member of the working class, we don't have that. We, you know, sort of fed this like American dream, you can make it big, it's just how hard you work sort of thing. And that has really crushed a lot of the class solidarity in the United States throughout history. And that includes racism and, and dividing workers by saying, well, you can, you white, poor white workers, you can have it slightly better than these poor black workers, just don't side with the black workers too. And that the the you know inherent racism in U.S. history that's threaded throughout U- U.S. history has really been used uh, to benefit people who would seek to crush the labor movement. You know, in the last few years, that's really uh, broken away, and that's happened in journalism too. You see all of these newer media places like Fox and everywhere else becoming unionized, and that's happened at the Washington Post, which has been reported on a little this year. We have, you know, the highest union membership um, ever in our newsroom right now. And we are negotiating a contract and have been for a year. 
Will you talk to us about an interesting piece you wrote? So your historical quote turned out to be fake. <laughs> sure. Was it a problem that many of us have had in our lives? Yeah. <laughs> the story of a January 6th defendant who had a quote that he used during his federal trial when governments fear the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. And he attributed it to Thomas Jefferson. Right. And Thomas Jefferson didn't say that. And actually, Monticello keeps a really good database of things that Thomas Jefferson did and did not say. So that is actually one of the easier quotes, uh, historical <laughs> quotes to fact check. But yeah, I mean, it's a pretty common thing. People are always... You know, something I said with the DeSantis book piece that I that I wrote a few months ago is that a lot of people think that doing history is quoting people and sort of like manipulating the quotes into whatever you want them to be. And there's that kind of misuse of quotes. And then there's just like the full stop made up quotes. Take, for example, rapper and former presidential <laughs> candidate Kanye West. Yeah. He told TMZ that 400 years of slavery was a choice, later citing Harriet Tubman, saying, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. Yeah, Harriet Tubman did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Harriet Tubman did not say that. Yeah. Unbelievable. So back to talk about Reagan. So by the time Reagan was president, he had, uh, you know, gone totally uh, conservative and, as people would remember, ended up being one of the more anti-union presidents that we've had. Um, everyone remembers the air traffic controller strike in 1981. And, you know, his argument there was that these were federal workers and that federal workers are not allowed to strike. It is illegal for a federal worker to strike. And so he, rather than negotiate, uh, gave them 48 hours to go back to their jobs. And the ones that didn't were fired. It was tens of thousands of air traffic controllers. She took a tough stance there, but not all presidents have done that. So there was the biggest illegal wildcat strike in American history was in 1970. It was the Postal Service. More than 210,000 postal workers struck for about eight days. I mean, it completely brought everything in the United States to a, a standstill. You know, eventually the uh, Postmaster General gave them an immediate raise. They ended the strike. Soon Congress passed another raise. And no one who struck uh, was ever punished, even though that was both an illegal strike and a wildcat strike. They did not have the permission of their union leadership to strike. And they just did it anyway because they said conditions were so bad and they were paid so poorly. And Nixon was president then and he didn't do anything about it. He didn't hurt them in any way. I mean, there is always this like liberal fantasy that Nixon <laughs> wasn't as bad as Nixon w actually was. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but in but, this case but, yes. the postal workers who did this illegal wildcat strike were not punished in any way and they were completely successful in getting what they were asking for good for those postal workers and then reagan you know a decade later says well federal workers aren't allowed to strike therefore they're all fired I mean, that was sort of a seminal moment in union busting. Absolutely. 
And I mean, it fits with ultimately a lot of the stuff that Reagan did, though. Again, like he did sign this no fault divorce when he was governor. That was the first state to approve no fault divorce and no fault divorce led to greater freedom for women and less domestic violence. And, and like, it's such a small thing that we don't think of as being as seminal as it was. But I'm curious if you would do two seconds on Eugene Debs, because you wrote a piece. <laughs> and again, this we're back to can a person run for president from a jail cell? Not that Donald Trump is going to jail, though he probably, if he were a normal person, might be. But yes, continue. Yeah, I mean, Trump and Debs's politics cannot be any more different. Debs was a union leader and a socialist, but he is the reason that we know that it is legal for someone to run for president, A, while being indicted for a crime, B, in jail. So Eugene V. Debs was jailed in 1920 for speaking out against World War One, and continued to run for president from jail. And Got something, I can't remember, he, he ran for president eight times. And so I don't remember if it was that election or another election. But at one point, he got almost a million votes. It was a, a, a good percentage of the vote. You can run for president from jail. Yes. Nobody knows if you can be president from jail. <laughs> <laughs> but you, Hopefully we won't have to find out. <laughs> You know, people say that history repeats itself and a lot of historians disagree uh, there. And right now, this is something for which there is no historical precedent. What happens if you elect a president who's in jail? I think the chances of the trials happening before uh, the election are scant, but that's something we may have to confront that has never been confronted in history. Gillian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.